You are listening to Uncanny Landscapes, Excursions into the Otherwise, with Justin Hopper. Although they, they're a favourite band, I, and although I've read a couple of books and things about them, I'm not an obsessive about my, my interests. So I've got friends who have these incredible obsessions about, you know, like bands like The Clash, who just leave me cold. But, you know, they, they know everything about them. And although I really like the like craft work and will boogie around and sing along, um, I'm I'm not kind of I'm completist. I don't know. I've probably got every one of their releases on vinyl, CD, or cassette. I've got some. I found my um, computer world cassette. So I've had. Well, I got this in. Uh, 1st installment of Uncanny Landscapes, a series of conversations around and excursions into the landscape of the otherwise. You've just heard today's guest, Angus Carlyle, talking about craftwork after the death of Florian Schneider. Much more from Angus very soon. And I am your host, Justin Hopper. I'm speaking to you from a small room in Dedham Vale, an area of outstanding uncanny beauty in the east of England. It is my goal through the conversations and accompanying detritus that will comprise these podcasts to retroactively determine and slowly, poorly define their subject matter. They are concerned with a wide variety of interpretations of the uncanny landscape, which is, for reasons that will become decreasingly obvious, the experience with which we so often encounter our surroundings. What is the uncanny landscape? Outside my door is an area of outstanding natural beauty, a British, let's say, junior-level national park, designated as such because of its associations with the picturesque painter John Constable. For fifty years now, this space has been decreed sacred ground that must be kept, in its appearance, closely aligned to the way it looked in Constable's paintings from the early 19th century. It is, in other words, a double not even a double of its past self so much, but of, in many instances, the way one man remembers it appearing in his childhood. Life in the uncanny landscape is, likewise, just a half-step apart from the real. But is that any different from any other place? Is that the uncanny landscape, or just the way we see the environment we inhabit in these times? In other words, the uncanny landscape might look or rather sound, a little bit like this. Halfway through the story of my life, I came to in a gloomy wood, because I'd wandered off the path away from the light. It's hard to put words to what that wood was. I shudder even now to think of it, so wild and rough and tortured were its ways. 
and death might well be its confederate in bitterness. Yet all the good I owe to it, and what else I saw there, I'll relate. Or, perhaps, it might be a bit like this. Yellow in a spike, waxy white and bell-shaped, clusters on the tip. Can form dense thickets along shady banks, hedgerows, heaths and waste ground. Shady places and old walls, an escape from cultivation. Rides and clearings, pensiveness, cheerfulness, end and beginning, pairs of opposite, picked out in winter, carrying it upwards in warmth, sky blue and almond scented, kidney shaped to heart shaped, the may tree of old. That's the first part of Descriptions from Six Sources in the book Night Blooms by Angus Carlyle. He's an author and artist, and a professor at University of the Arts London, where he was co-director of creative research into sound arts practice for a dozen years. He makes films with Rupert Cox about the echoes of history that resonate in the lives of those who reside beneath military flight paths. And he writes books about sound art and field recording practice, as well as books of let's call them air quotes nature writing that both reflect his lifelong love of the genre and some of the conflicts at its heart. His first book of this ilk was A Downland Index, published by Uniform Books, 100 texts, each of 100 words, based on running through the South Downs near his Sussex home, guided by an in-depth index to their subject matter, topics such as mist, eyes, incinerators, hallucinations, and cigarettes. The latest book, just published by Machina Books, is Night Blooms, a survey of the nocturnal landscape portrayed in short texts, altered archives, and headlamp-centered photographs. I spoke to Angus about running through the downs at night, about nature writing and mental health, about indices and his dadaist bureaucracy through which he approaches the natural world. A warning to the curious, there are occasional glitches in the technology of our discussion, interruptions that skew the voices in your head. I hope they're not too distracting. Now, finally, after all that, we can get to the heart with Angus Carlyle. I'm not sure if this is the right point to introduce this element that's active in both. This is active in both of those books. And the third part of the trilogy which those two constitute the first and second elements of. And what I'm really interested in is that is part of, I think, what you identified as this kind of Dada's bureaucracy side of things, which is to, and the particular part of it that I'm interested in is this strange relationship between the timestamp the digital timestamp that locates an activity within an almost legal status of truth and the cluster of uncertainty, confusion, doubt, um, ambiguity that revolves around the thing that's being timestamped. So one of the things that happened in both a downland index and in 
Night Blooms was that long before they became books, they existed as digital versions of themselves. So a download index, every one of the records that constitutes a download index was published first on a very obscure Tumblr account <laughs> that I, I, I think maybe five people followed me. Mm. And, I, and I got really interested in this question of, I guess the thing, I guess one of the motivations was, I'll, I'll explain another of the motivations in a bit, but one of the motivations was that as I was reading more nature writing, I was becoming frustrated with that nature writing. And one of the ways in which I was becoming frustrated with that nature writing was that the nature writing, the writing depended upon them um, cloaking itself in the mantle of truth telling. But I was reading these and thinking, do they really know this at the point that they have described themselves as knowing it? Mm. They know that that cry was the cry of a juvenile buzzard, or was that something that they heard, took back home, did some research on, and used that research to reveal an expertise that wasn't there in the first encounter? So one of the things I was interested in was how can you kind of uh, problematize that relationship to truth that sometimes appears in nature writing, um, which is a kind of virtuosic expertise um, through a different means. And so one of the things that I got interested in doing these timestamps and the timestamping happens with a download index through this obscure Tumblr account. It happens um, through Twitter and Instagram for uh, Night Blooms. And it happens primarily through Twitter for this third um, part of the trilogy. So what I'm interested in is kind of using these digital technologies to provide a kind of witnessing for me having been there. Now, obviously, what I take a picture of and upload or what I write might be just as untrue as anything that freaked me out about nature writing when I read it and began to think, is this really right? Do they, can they identify those flowers in the way that they think they can? <laughs> um, were, were they there? Did they walk for that length of time? Did they not have anything to drink with them? Mm. So one of the things I was interested in was how can you use something as kind of clean and digital and um, unnatural as the internet architecture around these clocks that are constantly logging activities like me uploading things to Tumblr, Twitter, Instagram, as a way of kind of inserting some kind of doubt into the process of nature writing, which is the process, as I see it, in terms of its conventional form of locating yourself in an environment and reporting back. Mm. The experiences that you've, that the environment has generated in you. And there's obviously it's a vast uh, field and it's got lots of different complexities and there's different uh, approaches. But one of the things that I think is common is, and is a, is a, is a, kind of projection of a, of a certain expertise. Yeah. So the nature writer is a, is a virtuosic uh, inhabitant of the familiar or unfamiliar. So even when they're in the unfamiliar, 
they're able to rely on a beautiful writing um, on, on a kind of um, transparent reflection of their own emotions or on various other kinds of things. So I became interested in thinking about how if you, you could use these technologies, which are not revealed in Night Blooms or a Downland Index or in the third one. I'm not saying this is a Twitter thing, although that does actually appear in Night Blooms, but um, I'm, I'm just interested as a kind of puzzle with myself similar to the puzzles that um, inform other writing that I do, which, which involved me placing um, constraints on writing and limiting writing through arbitrary means. Mm. So I guess the first thing that interested me about that was this process of putting something, recording something, and having that record um, authenticated at least in its digital um, form, through a kind of time stamping. Whether or not anyone recognised what I was doing, whether or not anyone even saw what I was doing, yeah, it was an it was an interesting thing to me to think about this, um, and to think about that as part of the process of writing that was different from the process of writing that seemed to me to be the one that is so beautifully done by your canonical and anti-canonical nature writers, which is that process of writing where the work as itself is done with integrity and uh, as an entirety. Yeah. And it's delivered to a publisher and it's pr produced as one thing. So, and I sort of thought, well, these social media, which until relatively recently, I mean, I don't have a Facebook account, but until relatively recently, I, I didn't have much involvement in this, but what prompted me to get involved, which I did first in 2016 when I first met you, was thinking, aha, I can use this as a way of um, kind of linking me to an environment and to a, a, a moment in time. Yeah. Through, through these digital processes that weren't invented to allow me to make a sarcastic commentary about nature writing through... <laughs> It's yeah. kind of piece, piecemeal <laughs> approach that I've adopted. But what it allowed me to do was to sequence my experiences and to place them in a world that's outside of the finished manuscript. And they did allow me to start to write in a way that was different from the familiating way that... You know, amazing authors like yourself are able to write where they can start on the first page and continue to its completion, which for me just felt so intimidating that as well as there being this kind of sarcasm about I am here and I am demonstrating my hereness yeah. through these digital technologies, there was also this other thing about parceling up the process of writing into these smaller chunks. And that's something that's present in Night Blooms, is, which is mainly a photographic work. It's definitely yeah. present in, in a Downland Index um, through the, the different um, hundred word uh, entries that were all Tumblr um, posts before they ever became a book. I think this is one of the problems that a lot of us have with nature writing and perhaps one of the problems that we have with this thing that, you know, for want of a better word, that we call nature, which is that um, 
I almost feel sometimes as though um, I'm being told that there are people out there who know all of this stuff instantly. Yeah. And almost intuitively, like almost mm -hmm. didn't have to learn it. Um, yeah. And I know that to some minor extent, that is actually true. You know, there are people mm. probably, you know, there are a few of the people that I, I know in this area who can tell mm. you everything about everything and they don't know how they mm. learned it. You know, they knew it when they were six. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, a lot of the people who do that kind of writing, you're, you know, it, yeah, I mean, we are basically being told there is a way to know this stuff. There is a there is an mm. answer to what these things are. Mm. Um, you just be more articulate in expressing what I wanted to express, but that is definitely one of the things that um, I in both enthralls me about nature writing and um, pushes me to think about what an unnatural writing might be. And it's not just that nature writing is the only locus where you can encounter these kinds of positions. There's definitely uh, something which is equally present in uh, a, a, another set of practices that I'm familiar with, which are around field recording, the same kinds of ways of uh, embodying a particular kind of, in this case, um, oral expertise and ability to listen and to understand things through an auditory awareness is definitely something that's, that manages our relationship to uh, nature and in different environments in, in sound. So it's not just there in nature writing, it's there in other things as well. And I think, I, I guess, maybe one of the things that's, that's not relevant for what we're discussing, but it is, is a factor in this, is that my grandparents and parents were... Um, very interested in um, birds and fungi and wildflowers and could name many things yeah. that I couldn't. Yet, each one of those had um, many, many books which they would return to after the trip in order to verify what they'd seen or to... Um, yeah, so I, I'm quite interested in this kind of this thing which which is about the the process of telling truth through writing and i guess that one of the things that interested me with these two texts was how to place the process of writing in a more public um sequence that would be available to other people yeah who could know that the first book took two years to write. The second book took three years to write, <laughs> right. if they wanted to. Right. Is that true? You know, and, and, and yet they're, ti they're tiny books. You know, they shouldn't yeah. take that long to write because yeah. they're, they're minuscule, but they took that long because they, they have that kind of... And I, and I guess another element to this is that a lot of writing that I enjoy is diaristic. So, yeah. um, you, know, uh, you know, one of the big... Uh, nodes for me is Derek Jarman and his diaristic mm. writing. Yeah. Um, another one is Ian Breakwell, mm. who is, you know, like even more important than Jarman uh, for me. Breakwell's writing is a kind of, is an inspiration for the format that I use.
but but the other thing that I'm interested in as well is in um, offering an alternative um, take on the embodied brain and the embrained body and the landscape as being one that has not just a virtuosic knowledge but has a total um, physical and mental awareness and um, ability to maneuver in those environments so in a downland index and in night blooms there's lots of elements which are about fear um, mm. Uh, mental health there's a lot about mental health in the, in the downland index it's not really picked up by anyone but for me is is a lot of the the entries are about um admitting uh on my part you know different different mental states whether those states are um states of fear hangover anxiety uh, all, all kinds of things that are um, o operating in tandem with uh, an openness to the joy um, and fun of things uh, as you encounter them. So I guess that was another thing that instead of making it, this is a piece of unnature writing, nature writing, this is a piece of work which is offering you a perspective through an explicit lens of, uh, let's say, a sort of anxiety disorder or something. Instead, it's something that's just part of the mix. It's not yeah. isolated as a particular filter. Um, so that was one thing that I was interested in was that and, and ironically I guess given the nature of the two books the other thing that I'm interested in problematizing is this kind of able body that's um, yeah and the secure body and the kind of dexterous body and even though one of the books is about running huge distances and then the other book is, is also running but I don't make that explicit and it's about being out at dark in the dark in environments uh, on the urban fringe but are still challenging to, to me in the way that the night woods have always been challenging mm -hmm. um, since I was growing up even though there are these bits that are about kind of um, placing yourself in a position that maybe other people wouldn't want to be placed at the same time I'm I hope that part of the uh, the project is about that kind of vulnerability and um, yeah, just a different register of experience than the one that I often encounter. So I'm not saying that within nature writing you can't have those modalities, and they're definitely there. Um, instead, what I'm saying is that when you have those modalities, you tend to have them as an emphasised and articulate, explicit component. Yeah. Whereas what I'm thinking of them more of is as part of the, just as the, you know, the starchy smell of petrichor is part of the atmosphere, so too is anxiety, so too is joy, so yeah. too is anticipation. So for me, to, to be truly kind of ambient uh, about the experience, things need to sort of find their own balance and not be, uh, not make the human um, position the... Um, a kind of an exclusive measure against which everything else is calibrated.
certainly in both of these projects, but I'm just thinking about Night Blooms. Um, but the images in particular, you know, made me think. I assume those are a lot of those are headlamp. Yeah, they're all yeah. Head torch. I yes. can't think of the right word. Is that what it's called? Yeah, head torch. Head torch. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it has this effect of you know we we normally see you know these sort of especially where you are in the South Downs. There's this sort of really grand, almost sublime kind of um, sweeping landscape that you know when you're uh, when you're up to Shanktonbury or, or on Frill Beacon or something, you can sometimes see when you're on top of Shanktonbury or the Longman, you can sometimes see Kent, you know, you can mm. see the mm. next county, which mm. here is, a, is quite a distance. You can see France from Beachy mm. Head sometimes. Um, mm. And you've done this thing that is taking that and saying mm. there's, you know, sort of one square meter in front of me. Definitely, and, yeah. And that's it. And it does put you in the moment. But I was struck by, uh, um, I don't have it in front of me now, but um, there's a piece that's something about 1799 field names mm. um, that's, you know, going around an estate mm -hmm. or something uh, that yeah. I, I assume is sort of suburban. Um, yes, it's Stanmer Park. Oh, right. Okay. And, uh, but using the names as it was yeah. in, in a 1799 yeah. recording. Um, and it kind of does the, to me, it kind of does the same thing. It kind of makes you realize that like, kind of makes you think oh yeah this location is always just this little patch of grass yeah de definitely that's definitely what i'm doing trying to do is both kind of fragment the um the vista to try and stop the vista being taking over mm. but also trying and not necessarily in a snarky way but i you know as i say in, in the introduction to down and index this is this is an entirely managed landscape you know yeah. there is no and this woodland that people come to to enjoy it, and has been for several hundred years uh, not just a managed landscape not just a cultivated landscape but a named and owned landscape mm. so all these uh, traditional estate markings and field markings represent um you know formations of bourgeois individualism the, the claims of feudal property um, and, and if you look at the names that are in that list, it's, it's it, what it represents to me is a way of uh, connecting the beauties, which I'm not denying, of, of this area, um, which I was in this afternoon and mm. many people were out there and it is a lovely place to be, but it's also an owned and managed environment and it yeah. has been for a very long time. So you're treading on, on turf that has been cultivated in back-breaking ways mm. by people who lived in terrible circumstances. Yeah, yeah, for at least 5,000 years. Yeah, and, and you know, we know from those 1799 field maps that the people who were working those fields were people who were working those fields for an absolute pittance, probably um, in really difficult circumstances with lowered mortality and all kinds of different things. And yet... Um, that process of, uh, so on the one hand, there is this process of I want to fragment the landscape so that we can see it and hear it in a different way, sense it differently. But I also want to make connections to other things that aren't fragmentary, that are actually quite unifying, like property relations yeah. or, um, yeah, the, the kind of 
fences and barriers, which are things that appear in both books as there's an emphasis yeah. on fences and barriers and we see you see them in night blooms and you read about them in in the other one and i think that we we're really lucky to have as much access as we do and to have as many permissive paths like in that phrase the permissive path yeah it's something which you have been temporarily awarded for it this. to be permissive someone's given you permission exactly it's a yeah. limited form of access that can presumably with be withdrawn just as quickly as it was offered and i think that there's you know we 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 just had the anniversary of kinder scout and mm. th these issues about access to the land are only going to get i think um sharper in the years to come That's so that piece in um, Night Blooms is called Descriptions from Six Sources. It has a similar methodology where the six sources are wildflower yeah. books. Yeah. And so they're all kinds of different wildflower books. So some of them are medicinal, some of them are folkloric, some of them are scientific, kind of botanical. And then I just thought, well, if you can sort of mix these up, you, you get this strange sense of what these organic familiars uh how how we relate to them in the world you know we, these are the things that um are relatively simple in some respects incredibly complicated in others and we've lived with them for a long time and named them like you say but we've also done lots of other things to them so we've attributed them with uh colors and meanings and yeah um, you know emotions. Uh, medicinal qualities emotional qualities uh all kinds of different things from from these yeah from these life forms that yeah. predated our presence on the planet by vast <laughs> amounts of time. Yeah, and I think that's with the night blooms. That's definitely part of it. Is there is this kind of again this kind of stick tone where in, in part what those images are kind of referencing is the kind of the studio shot. So none of them are in any way edited. There's no processing. Yeah. It's just me on my knees in difficult conditions, trying to take a shot of uh, some hawthorn blossom that yeah. looks as if it's been positioned in a studio and a picture taken of it with kind of a nice camera with focus and lighting and all of this kind of stuff. And, and so part of it is about this kind of strange and, and entire, like in both uh, Adam and Index and Night Blooms and with the, the third book in the series, there is this kind of strange narcissistic aspect to it, which mm. does perhaps relate to Freud's Uncanny in the sense that there's all this hidden stuff going on that no one else is going to know about. I'm not going to tell you about all the hidden stuff that's in both of those books. But it's as well as having all of these things about the digital time stamping and these little jokes that, that run through it, yeah. through each of them, that no one ever gets because I'm not very good at telling. <laughs> but you think they're funny. They, they have all of these things, but for me, the... Um, to know the conditions in which I was taking, looking, looking at it again, I can look at a particular page, I can see 
that the um, the poppy against the fence mm. um, has this kind of really nice sort of softened light to it. And But I also know that it was really hard to get that shot. And I can remember being on my knees and cars going past and people beeping me and me feeling very uncomfortable <laughs> oh, right. about what on earth I was doing out here. <laughs> And, you know, that's that's kind of, that's uncomfort is stacked on top of the general levels of fear that I have uh, <laughs> being out in the woods at night. Um, so, yeah, so I'm interested in these kinds of strange uh, private arguments that uh, um, ones that I have with myself that only very small um, shadows of these are what appears in these books. And, right, yeah. Uh, and I don't mind that people don't get them. It's, it's not necessarily... Uh, but I'm also, yeah, not entirely sure why, why I'm doing it. But I, I like the fact that there are all of these different elements, for me at least. In so it. in a way, it's almost like... Um, I'm trying to think of a, a really terrible metaphor. Um, I think of scaffolding a lot. But... Um, yeah. But it, it, it's as though you're... Scaffolding's good. I love scaffolding. It's as though you're yeah. building this immense scaffolding and it takes you weeks and weeks just to put a flower on top of a rooftop. Yeah. And then you take all the scaffolding down and... Scaffolding's very big for me. And yeah, I yeah. think I use it as a, as a metaphor for a lot of what I do. I think to myself about scaffolding. And I guess maybe one of the reasons why I can kind of, I mean, they're quite uptight books, both of them, <laughs> but they're much more unbuttoned than some of the other work that I do. So the, the much more documentary work that I do, particularly with a really great anthropologist I work with called Rupert Cox, has a different relationship to telling truth and to the documentary um, principle. And in a way, this is, this is me, Bowland Index and um, Night Blooms are kind of me letting my hair down a bit, and so right. although to you your your reading I think these are quite buttoned up for texts, for me that's me kind of letting it all hang out. <laughs> right, of, right. You know, you know the fear and the and the me is is present in a way that I couldn't do yeah. with these these documentary projects like Zawawa and uh, Air Pressure that I did with Rupert Cox, where it's not really about us. We're, we're um, in, a, in a relationship with the people we're making the films about, but it's ultimately their film. It's their story, their truth. And, yeah. and to, it would be utterly inappropriate for me to say, I've got a terrible hangover, um, <laughs> and to make that part of the frame yeah. of what we were doing. There, There is a documentary um, approach that would incorporate that but it's not the one that's appropriate for our collaboration and I think so Rupert and my work on in Okinawa and Narita has this kind of documentary and and anthropological uh, component to it that's quite serious and it, it is about um, effacing my role uh, at least within the frame of the film works that we produce Outside those, there's always a kind of field notes side to it. So that there's a book that we're producing at the moment that's in relation to this Okinawan film where there's a lot of um, personal diarised field notes of the kind that you see in the Dandeland Index about right. the process of making this anthropological film. Um, 
And then there's the kind of, so that's that one pole. The other pole is a downland index and night blooms. And then in the middle are the work that I have done with an Italian friend called Chiara Caterina. And that's kind of yeah. halfway between the two. It has a kind of documentary impulse, but then it also has a, 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 a kind of narcissistic impulse as well. Um, yeah, I'm not sure that they, those work as a dichotomy, but for me, <laughs> thinking, thinking about them, a lot of the things that motivate what ends up entering the pages of a downland index and night blooms are the things that are radically and um, um, deliberately excluded from right. those other. So, right, right. so if we're talking about a return of the repressed yeah. as being one of the things <laughs> that kind of propels the uncanny in Freud's um, psychopathology, then definitely a downward index and <laughs> night blooms have that element to them. It, it does make me wonder, like, coming back to my initial sort of raison d'etre of, like, what is an uncanny landscape? What does that mm. mean? the uncanniness is when one of the one of the ways in which we achieve uncanniness when you mix up all of these different you know mm. uh, uh, sort of um you know you mix up the times you mix up the definition mix up the semiotics that's the word i'm looking for um nice. and all of a sudden you know it's a zombie it's not any of these things it's it's in between it's not alive or dead I wonder if there's another kind of uncanny uh, is when the landscape reveals itself exactly as you had expected to, it to. So it's, you know, in where you are, if you were to walk around a corner and see a river curving and a cart on the left-hand side with a thatched cottage. Yeah. And just at that moment, look up from maybe the phone that you were checking the message to see that constable image. Maybe that's another kind of uncanny where instead of seeing an animal that we didn't think of as a carnivore eating uh, roadkill, instead of that, that way of the unfamiliar, the uncanny coming through to, to the extent that um, we realise these processes behind the manuc manicured landscape, like um, maybe there's the other thing, which is that the the landscape looks just perfect. Yeah, it just looks perfect. It looks so perfect. It, it actually starts instead to look like its own representation. So it's kind of like the way that. Um, you know, the way that Capability Brown and other landscape designers created these ornamental gardens to look like the pictorial planar representation of what they wanted nature to be. Yeah. But when they do that and you go and visit them, there's something really strange about them. Yeah. They, you, you look at the pond and you think, well, that's not right. How come it's got that curving side? You'd never... and I, it, there's nothing about it that's plastic or um, sheer or angular. It's all organic in some sense, 
but the totality is put together with such a precision that it becomes imprecise, that it becomes uncanny. In the book Solaris, one of the things that freaks out the uh, engineer is when his reactivated wife appears wearing a dress that has no seams. So a dress without seams is perfection. You don't need to have seams in a kind of projected fantasy world because seams are part of how material fits together in the real yeah. world. Um, but when he realises that her dress doesn't have any seams, that's the point he realises that she is purely a projection yeah. and has no kind of reality. And I guess with these ornamental gardens and with some of the way that you know the wider landscape is managed, you can get to these points where you just think, whoa, that stone, that yellow of the oilseed rape and the way that it curves off towards the horizon is so perfect. It's unnatural. Thank you for listening to Uncanny Landscapes. We'll be back soon with the next installment. My guest was Angus Carlyle, and his new book is called Night Blooms, available from Machina Books. His website is anguscarlyle.com, and his previously mentioned Twitter and Instagram feeds are at Angus Carlyle. The reader was Lucy Greaves. The music was Come, Vehicles of Light by Teleplasmist from their new album To Kiss Earth Goodbye, out now on House of Mythology, with thanks to the band for permission. Plus, of course, Pocket Calculator by Kraftwerk. The title theme is by Belbury Polly, courtesy of Ghostbox Records, and the uncanny landscapes icon was made by Stefan Musgrove, Firebrand Creative. Additional special thanks to Lucy Greaves and Jim Jupp for their advice. I'm Justin Hopper. You can contact me via justin-hopper.com or on Twitter at OldWeirdAlbion. More installments coming soon. Subscribe if that's an option, or keep a lookout on the wires. And until then, remember Basho. Even in Kyoto, hearing the cuckoos cry, I long for Kyoto. Kyoto.